Are you ready to take your cybersecurity skills to new heights? Look no further than Cybrary, the best way to learn cybersecurity skills online. With an accessible and affordable training platform, curated career paths, threat informed training, and certification preparation, Cybrary has everything you need to succeed. Visit cybrary.it today. Start for free and unlock your potential. Elevate your cybersecurity journey with Cybrary. Enjoy the podcast and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Hello and welcome to the Cyberry Podcast. I have the privilege today of being joined not only by our kind of a regular feature here, Matt Mullins, uh, lovingly known as the chief thief here at Cyberry, our adversary emulator, uh, but his counterpart today, uh, Mark Ballinger, on the defensive, the defirst side of things. Uh, we've got a really interesting topic to talk about today, um, chat GPT, um, why that's showing up for the cybersecurity industry uh, and what that means for us going forward generally. We'll walk through some use cases as well, which is going to be super fun. Uh, but to get us started, Mark, uh, give us a little bit of, of an intro about yourself, sir. Sure. So, hey, everyone. Uh, Matt, well, you guys know me, but I joined the team, the cyber team, what, a few months ago, a few weeks ago? So it's been about a month and a half, really enjoying it. But background about myself, I used to do digital forensics consulting um, for both major companies and small businesses. So I did the both proactive and reactive side. So what did that mean? Playbooks, interest response plans, uh, tabletop scenarios, and then the reactive stuff. So that's the fun thing. Late nights, Taco Bell, energy drinks, uh, dealing with dealing with clients, but that that was my life, and then now I'm here at Cyberry doing security researching, weekly challenges, and having fun. Oh, so I guess Mark, the important question is, what's your energy drink of choice? Oh, Monster. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> flavor though, zero calorie, fully leaded. What? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent, pure sugar, just no zero calorie, just just default. Yeah, palpitations every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fully leaded, whatever flavor you can get your hands on enough uh-huh. and enough quantity to make it through the incident, yeah. right? Exactly. That's great. <laughs> um, so, you know, we'll start here with a little bit of background on, you know, what is chat GPT? Um, and, you know, <laughs> effectively, it's a, it's a chat bot, um, to, to put it in not so many words, a, a chat bot that's really pretty clever. And you can find out more about the project in general at openai.com, um, which is the parent uh, project here, but uh, effectively they've trained this model to respond to natural language inputs and a natural language response, right? So this is not a search engine. It's not you're typing in a query and it's going to give you a bunch of references. It's going to try to parse together a human understandable, completely originally generated response, right? So if you use a search engine, it's just going to tell you what it found that seems to align uh, to your request, but this is actually going to originally generate, based on how the model has been trained, a response to the question that you typed in in plain English, right? Um, so for right now, um, the project, ha- you can get act- free access to it. Um, and the website says that they're getting user feedback to learn about the strengths and the weaknesses of the model. I think as a cybersecurity person, you can interpret that a couple of different ways. Um, I would cheekily say that they're probably not asking customers for feedback. <laughs> They're probably yeah. just using all of our inputs to continue to train and tweak the model, right? They're, they're looking at people like Matt and going, hmm, we think this might be a nefarious request. They'll see if more of those kinds of requests come in. And then they can train the model to say, yeah, don't answer that thing. That guy's up to some, some shady stuff. Um, obviously, yeah. they don't know Matt's intent on the other side of the, the terminal. All they know is that may or may not be something that we should uh, be responding to, right? So my intuition here is that they're training the model based on all of the input that they're not sending out uh, 
customer satisfaction surveys about the particular <laughs> tool, right? So they're using our input to help make their product better, um, which I think we're all to a certain extent right now gladly doing. And I'll mention here real quickly, um, there's a pretty interesting sample of a response on the website there in the blog uh, where OpenAI is talking about ChatGPT and what it can do, right? So it's a it's a little bit of a code snippet where they're talking about, hey, there's an error in this code. Can you help me? And ChatGPT not only ultimately provides a recommendation about how to solve the problem, but it asks clarifying questions along the way to get to that conclusion. So it's not just, again, parroting out, here's the error because it's uh, looked at the code. It's actually responding, asking clarifying questions to get to a potential response. So um, pretty interesting. Definitely go check it out. We'll link... Um, OpenAI and the ChatGPT project uh, in the show notes below. But I, I guess a question that I came across as I was thinking about this and I've been following it a little bit is, why does the cybersecurity community care about ChatGPT? I know I've been doing this long enough and Mark and Matt, you two both as well, that if I'm being totally honest, uh, AI, machine learning have started to feel like buzzwords to the cybersecurity community just as something that the marketing team yeah. has put on a product to make us supposedly want to buy it because it's going to solve all of our problems and and mean we have to we can carry half as much staff as we do today and i think we have generally hand waved that away uh, because we have not seen a whole lot of benefit or value in in those words yet so you know i guess my first question for you both is why does the industry care now maybe not the industry but why are individual uh, practitioners, researchers taking note of chat GPT where we really have been dismissive in the past. Yeah. I'll let you go first, Mark. Did your first podcast? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I have my own thoughts on it, but just from like a industry perspective, right? As you guys probably know, when you interview people, it's hard to find talented people, right? It's it's easy to find people that are, that are applying, but hard to find talented people. And I think, and talking to a few people as well, our small businesses, they're trying to, see if AI can be that teacher in a way where they can use that as a training model for, for individuals, for newcomers in college or newcomers in the industry. So for example, Hey, write me a tabletop scenario. Uh, I met CEPs where they have never talked to any CEOs, CISOs, anything like that before. So their social skills aren't the best, nor is their creative skills, right? It, it's more of a handholding process. So this module, this AI can be more of a more of a guide in a way, right? It can give you at least the high level points of what to be looking for, what to be asking in in XYZ scenario, for example. That's just how I see it. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. Um, you know, like when Mark, like what you were saying, like there's a lot of good functionality that can be extracted from it for junior analysts, people who are new in the career. Yeah. Um, you know, it effectively removes the necessity of almost like a middle tier of skill within the industry. Because when you think about it, what, what is the differentiator between someone who is fresh, brand new, someone who's somewhat seasoned and someone who's extremely like skilled, right? So um, what is it like the level one to five? Level five is like the security researcher, like the James Forshaw level one is the kid fresh out of college. And then somewhere in between, most people fall in the mix, right? Um not to steal from, from Ross and Mouse's analogy in one of his blogs, but I think it's a pretty good one, right? When we think about people's talent and skill within their, you know, their particular field of interest. And so when you introduce like this AI model um, that can be used and queried, level two and level three, it gets interesting because, you know, like a level two analyst might not know all the things, but they have maybe some technical skill. 
Um, and the level one might depend on them as a predicate to get to that level three and then so forth and so forth. And what this will probably end up doing in one capacity, and there's a lot of different ways that this is going to impact the industry, but I can very easily see like junior analysts using this as essentially like a crutch, kind of like what you were talking about, Mark. And that in a way is good because it's going to help, you know, small businesses to be able to kind of up the ante and write better code, right? Instead of being dependent on like an individual who is the bottleneck, right? They might not be the master of all things, but in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the inverse of that problem is, is what happens if you become dependent on the AI and then you turn off your brain? Uh, it's like the Google problem that a lot of the our generation and the younger are facing is where things that were rudimentary to memorize within the school are no longer rudimentary to be memorized in school. And you can just reference Google, you can reference Wikipedia. Yeah. And so I'm sure those types of issues will rear themselves up in regards to like code, right? And uh, some of the examples that you and I have seen, I think, well, you've also seen a line where people have put things in and it will recommend things that on the surface level look valid. But then when you think about them from either a security perspective or maybe a code sanity perspective, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, so I could see that being introduced as like a as, as an issue for the industry. But the other thing is also... Um, the rapid prototyping of things, right? You know, we talked about this and, and Will and I kind of um, conversed a little bit too, Mark, where if you were able to intelligently set up a correct, a correctly aligned pipeline, shoveling things like this into OpenAI to do like really basic stuff. Now, kind of as, you know, I'm sure you guys have seen and, uh, and mentioned prior probably uh, that it's starting to be corrected. <laughs> and so maybe some of those things might not work as well in the future, but still, I think the use cases with creative wording, you know, there's still value in regards to that. And so that's obviously going to accelerate and automate a lot of things that normally there at least had to be entry-level skill set. And the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, fishing. I mean, I always think about fishing. I love fishing. You know, I think it's like one of the coolest parts of, of red teaming, but the, the thing that's interesting is, is a lot of your standard anti-spam and abuse training essentially calls out what? Hover the link. Well, we know that you can spoof those things and you can bypass those things. Um, we've got sandboxing and quarantining. Well, you can bypass those and spoof those things. So your, 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 your defenses are slowly getting whittled away. And then one of the things is the human element, right? Does this look like a real email? Well, now we're starting to remove that theoretically because you can always just say, open AI. I need you to write me an email that entices users to fill out a survey about their favorite character in Overwatch. And here's the survey monkey link. Bada bing, bada boom, you know? So it's a lot. And there's there's probably more that we could dig into, but for the sake of time, I won't just like old man yells at cloud. Um, and I'll zip Yes, yeah, so I'm mean, a, a pretty common theme, I think, between a number of the reasons that you both stated is one of velocity, right? Whether that's velocity and getting people up to speed and a fundamental understanding, whether that's velocity and producing proof of concept code for things, Matt, right? Or, you know, offloading some of the rudimentary tasks um, in addition to writing copy that you might want to tweak and tune, but it's generated a lot of it based on common patterns. So I think, and we'll dive into the phishing use case. I think it gets pretty interesting, right? So it, uh, as a, as a, ultimately a natural language processing uh, or an, an ML model that's been trained on language to produce language, um, it probably knows a whole lot better what a good email would look like than I do. <laughs> it's read a whole lot more than I have. So it starts to be a really powerful tool. But again, you know, I think most of the use cases that you guys gave at a, at a top level are just empowering us as humans to move faster. And I think if we look across, you know, history, um, automation in general has that as a pretty consistent theme. 
Um, and there is the, the the human risk of all of that too, right? So, um, you know, I know some are saying, oh, well, tier one SOC analysts are not even going to have a job anymore. AI is going to take place of them. And I don't believe that we've seen that happen. And even if it does, there are downstream impacts of that, right? So if there's no tier one jobs, how do you have qualified tier two folks ultimately? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> a, a number of things kind of packed into this, but I do think tools like this, machine learning, artificial intelligence is kind of the parent umbrella here. Um, a lot of it is about velocity um, and making us run faster because I do think some of the things that we're seeing, and we'll we'll poke on this in some of our use cases in a bit, um, it'll spit out stuff. Um, like I went through real quickly and um, you know said, hey, how would you wipe the master boot record on a computer? And it was happy to tell me at that point in time, you know, this might be nefarious, but by the way, here's how you do it. Um, <laughs> and I don't have to have any intelligence to go through and do it. And the model was smart enough to say, you probably never want to do this. But I think about this from the cybersecurity perspective of, you know, a second wave of more sophisticated and original script kitties, right? So it's not just going pulling down a GitHub repo and and running it against something. Like I now, as somebody that knows very little, can go out and possibly produce some original content or have some original content produced for me to do what I want without really understanding it. And I think we'll see you later again that there are some breaking points there where if you don't know what it's putting spitting out, um, it may not be great code. Yeah. Matt, to your point, like that one to five, like I think somebody in that kind of two to three range, when you're clever enough to know when a model like this is working well and when it's not, it could probably make you one, go faster and two, potentially to the phishing example, come up with some new ideas that may be in some ways higher quality than you might have come up with. Yeah. Um, so I think it is really interesting, really interesting to note that the cybersecurity community at large is taking note uh, this time. So if you haven't had a chance to get in and kind of kick the tires of chat GPT, would definitely encourage you to do so. Uh, no telling how long that uh, kind of learning period is going to last and they'll move the model um, to a paid model. But the last thing I'll say before we move into the interesting use cases is that it seems very apparent that the OpenAI team is trying to be responsible with the tool, right? Yes. Um, they were giving warnings about, hey, be careful, or hey, this might be a, a nefarious request. And it does seem, even since we've been researching this this week, that they've trained the model and tightened it down even more. So some of the use cases that I know I ran through at the first of the week are not just flagging and generating, they're flagging and not generating a response whatsoever. Um, yeah. So hats yeah. off to the OpenAI project to try to be good citizens uh, of the community in which they live. But having said that, if this model exists uh, for good purposes, I'd be very, very shocked if there's not an equivalent model owned by a state-sponsored or another threat actor group it's equally capable. So I think some of the, the talk here today is just to understand that this is where the tech is largely at and where we've come with AI and machine learning and totally understand, and I'd make a bet, that there are equivalent tools in other places that we're just not currently aware of. So it'll be a really interesting proof point of kind of where the industry is and where we respond. But enough exposition. Let's get into the kind of the different part here and, and talk about some, talk about and show some use cases. And I think a good one to start with, Matt, is, uh, you know, right squarely in your passion project in life. And that's kind of this um, content generation, um, particularly within the phishing space. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, do you guys see my screen? Looks like you yep. can. Okay, cool. Uh, let's generate something that would be useful. Um, um, Hopefully it doesn't die this time. Write me an email that entices users to fill out a survey 
about their favorite soda. Super basic, right? I wanted to say, write me an email that entices users to fill out a survey about their favorite Overwatch character and why that's Genji. But I figured this is probably a little bit more broad. And so, Matt, for you as a cybersecurity professional, how does this use case show up? Like, when would you, when do you see yourself <laughs> generating this? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Um, part of a good uh, breaching uh, breaching process flow is creating a, a believable context. Uh, con uh, context. Um, uh, why is the word slipping my mind right now? But part of it is is creating a believable. Uh, predicate, I guess, for the individual to open the email and to want to click the links, right? You've all heard about like, hey, create a sense of urgency or um, there's threats. Although most organizations, when you run a red team, are going to probably try to dissuade you from making threats to the employees. Um, so essentially for us, part of that process is creating these, these types of emails that want to make people want to do things. And there's a lot of like interesting ways that we can do things to make them seem legitimate. But part of the problem is, is um, and I'm sure if there's any of my former coworkers in, in the audience, there's a lot of stress about using the exact right words and uh, how you want to say things. And so the nice part about this is, is we could give it this, this information and say, give us an email, right? And then we review it. And then the majority of it is done because we don't have to sit here and be like, okay, so how do we start? What's the most likely way that we could start this type of email and ask, hey, I'm who I am and I, who I claim to be some sort of a legitimate authority. Um, this is why you should click the link, blah, 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 blah. Like there's a lot of thought that goes into those things because, you know, with a lot of instances, you've created malware specifically for this one channel, right? And you might've spent a lot of time customizing it. So you want everything to be perfect because you want the click. You don't want them to report it. And then it ended up on Mark's desk. And then Mark's like, okay, cool. Now your infra is burned. We've got a hash of the malware and, all that work is out the window. So it's really useful because it does that for you. And then as we all know, um, you know, it's easier to review something someone else has done than it is to write something entirely from scratch, right? The whole blank page syndrome. Yeah, it's easier to edit than to create, right? Yeah. You got to begin to begin, you know, not to quote Pete the Cat in that one song, but like essentially it's it's that, right? So this gives us that, right? So I mean, we can look at this and see, you know, hello, valued soda enthusiast. <laughs> We're at blah, 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 blah company. We're looking to ways to improve and bring you the best blah, 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 blah. We want to know what flavors you love and what you'd like to see more of, you know. Plus, as a token of your appreciation, we'll be entering all participants into a drawing to win a year's supply of soda. So don't wait. Take the survey now and let your voice be heard. And notice from the query, I didn't write anything about that enticement part. I was, I was just said entices a user. I didn't say offer them free soda or whatever. And that's obviously kind of an ephemeral thing that you could bake into the, the, the pretext is what the word I was trying to think of earlier for this email. So it makes it super useful for generating these. And the other thing is, going back to that conversation point, there are no real uh, glaring typos. You know, obviously you'd want to review it if you're going to use something like this for a red team activity, but there's no real typos. It's written in the language pretty clearly. So if English is your second language and you're an advanced persistent threat actor group that doesn't speak English, Obviously, everybody knows, look for typos, look for weird words and stuff like that and, and flow of conversation. This doesn't really exhibit any of those things. And as an external vector, you know, I can just put this information in and it gives me something useful, right? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting too, Matt. I, I know as I was checking, kind of testing ChatGPT early, um, World Cup's underway. Uh, I had it generate something aligned to World Cup and your favorite team. Um, yeah. So as a threat actor and football, soccer is probably not the best example because it's super popular around the world. But all you have to know is enough about something to ask the tool to do it. <laughs> and it will do it for you. Like, I don't have to know anything about any of the World Cup soccer teams and the tool's going to generate some relevant content to me um, along those lines. So, you know, I think of, to your point, Matt, of generating phishing email copy and the, even if somebody's really good at it and they take a 15-minute stab or it takes 30 minutes, like, how many prototypes here could I get out of a tool like ChatGPT and just tweak and change the wording and have a, a full-on phishing campaign that's composed of multiple emails along the same theme? Like, all of a sudden... Your your A B testing your phishing campaign as a threat actor or an adversary emulator, right? Well, which of the emails do they open the best? Like, I know you only need one, but talk about learning tradecraft, right? So, like, which which of these is getting better open rates? Which of these are getting responses? Which of these, uh, and you could do so at scale really quickly. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think we talked about this earlier. There's there is an exposed API for this as well. Mm -hmm. So that just makes it more fun because now you can put less brain power into it. You can just throw it at the API as part of, you know, whatever your script is. And it gives you, I mean, talking about your real world cup one, I mean, while you were explaining your perspective, I just typed in, write me an example of a text message encouraging users to take a brief world cup survey in the same way. Right. Now we can see kind of some patterns by participating. You'll be entered into draw into a drawing to win a signed Jersey. We want to know what your flavors you love. And we like to see by taking a few short minutes to fill the survey, you'll be provided value. By taking, we'll be entering all participants into a drawing to win a year's supply of soda. So we can kind of see the pattern it follows, right? It says like, take the survey and you'll be entered into a thing. And we probably could query it in a way to say like, don't offer them like a drawing, but offer them like an Amazon gift card or something. So, you know, it's just kind of interesting. Um, I think that's it's very cool for this purpose. Uh, Another place I see this showing up, I know in some work that we're doing for some related courseware here is um, building sock puppets is no small amount of work. Yes. Um, and a big part of the work is just the credibility and the longevity of some of those sock puppets. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are people that do that particular thing as a primary function of their role that invest years and years mm -hmm. in kind of curating those sock puppets and their personalities and their personas. And, you know, notwithstanding that some of the validity of those sock puppets are how long they've been in existence, but imagine managing five to 20 sock puppets and having to create seemingly uh, original content aligned to that persona at scale. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. But when you can have a tool help you write a year's worth of social media posts, um, aligned to a couple of themes, very quickly you get a backlog of stuff to go in and post. Um, and again, from a velocity perspective, it could really, really speed things up. This is not an attack on you, Mark. It's fine, dude. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just made me think, right? So like, say I want to like get into as an information operation, infiltrate a social circle, right? There's a lot of private discords, slacks, et cetera, associated with, you know, people who are in the industry, making it into the industry. They might know people, right? And say we want to try to try to infiltrate that, right? That seems like a very valid operational, um, you know, a high value aspect of an operation. To your point, Will, you know, how hard would it be to just basically create a bot that just opens up 
the API to you know Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever, or just visits the page with the correct you know Python scripting, and then just shovels a request into OpenAI complaining about random thing, and then generates this. I mean, this is pretty good. Now, some of it's obviously it has some feelings in there too. You see that? It has some heart and soul in there. Oh, I was just gonna say, like, as a twenty-five-year-old sock analyst, like that kind of like, hey guys, just so you know, I'm a sock analyst. <laughs> um, that seems a little bit, you know, there might be some hemming and hawing that you might want to take on that one. But like, like you were saying, Mark, it's scary to think about how easily a hacker get access to someone's entire home through a compromised smart thermostat or security camera. Like you said, like there's some valid stuff in there, man. Yeah. That's pretty slick, you know. And like, but I know I've seen posts literally talking about this stuff. Yeah, but so, it's like what we were saying before, though, if you don't know what you're looking for and you just kind of like rely on it, I could see someone just copy and pasting this. If there's obviously bad things you, you don't want to copy and paste, but yeah, don't worry. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, you're right. And the thing that makes me think about is like from a historical archaeological perspective, whenever there's these things called like, uh, was it historical fraud, not frauds, like forgeries or whatever, like someone will be saying a story like, I, Julius Caesar, do decree X, Y, Z. Thus, you should listen because I am Julius Caesar, you know, emperor of Rome. Yeah, or whatever. exactly. Like, Julius Caesar's not going to say that. It's like, you don't go to McDonald's and be like, it is I. Matt, I am ordering the burger. Please give me, the customer, Matt, the burger. Like, no one says that, right? So, some interesting things. But like you said, Mark, I mean, it's got some good, got some good wins. I want to I want to do the, the red well, team story one. Well, real cool. quick, real quick. Because well, we mentioned the open AI thing. I'm curious, and I put it in the chat, can it run mm-hmm. tools? So, like, say if you say, run an NMAP scan and run, <laughs> yeah, run an NMAP scan in your, on your network and give me the output. Will that work? Oh, no, I don't think that would work. Survey says, probably going to be like, I can't do the bad yeah, thing. I don't think we'll do that. Yeah. Or like, I can't let you do that, Hal. Yeah, an interesting call out here too with the way this works, kind of going back to my original comment, but yeah. Mm. Oh. Oh. Is bad. this isn't a search engine, right? So it's not necessarily going to be able to reportedly, could there be AI-powered tools that can? Yes, but it's not going to reach out to the web and do a query. It's originally generating all of this work. So yeah, there you go. So I think so much of the power of this is in, and and I know in our research, um, the way you word things. So like if you go in and say, you know, write me some ransomware code in C-sharp, it's going to tell you, no, you can't do that. But if you decompose that problem in a plain English way into the steps that are required to do it, it will begin to piece those things together for you. So there's a lot of, as this was trained on natural language, the words that you choose to ask the question in a tool like this are really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. The best way it was described to me, Will, is like a 3D printer. It won't print you a gun, right? But it will print you the barrel, print you the magazine, it'll print you all the parts of it. Same thing with this. It's not going to print you malware, which I kind of wish it does, but um, it will print you the parts of it. You just got to, this is the verbiage at the end of the day, how you, how you, how you ask it. This content may violate our content, content policy. If you believe this to be error, please submit your feedback. Interesting. Nope, so not only does it give you, a, uh, I can't do that, Hal, but it's also like, here's a nasty gram. But to your point, Will, let's try this. Matt's about to be on a, on a block list soon. Oh, I'm sure I'm already on a couple. (laughs) (laughs) That recursively encrypts files and gives them a unique extension 
while also advising the administrator that the files have been encrypted for their protection. While that's running, I'll circle back to the kind of the social posts example that we gave above. I think, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, th these aren't really great posts. And I would totally agree with that. But, <laughs> you know, there's something to be said for, you know, why do people creating all these spam emails and these phishing emails leave the typos in? And I know one of the arguments for doing that that I've heard is, well, they're looking for the mm -hmm. unscrupulous people that don't know to, to know any better, right? So I think there's a double-edged sword there, right? So maybe you lob some of those social posts out because you don't want the people that know to even kind of come through your pipeline. Um, but it's also, how much better were those social posts than some of the really bad phishing emails or spam emails that we've seen, right? So I think it just, it ups the level of sophistication as we go. And it doesn't take a whole lot of knowledge to look at those posts and, and know what to change uh, as well. But again, you didn't have to generate any of that. Um, it was generated for you. So, you know, we would like to think that nobody would click on or believe some of those posts, but shoot, people have clicked on and, and sent gift cards for, for a right, whole lot like, worse yeah. uh, plan oh. attacks. So, yeah. and, and that's not victim shaming on my part at all. It's just kind of the, the status of things um, and how much better were those posts than some of the other things that we've seen. Yeah, so this request that I just dropped in was literally the one that I put in earlier. I guess it just thinks that I smell bad now. Right. Yeah. Like last week, they changed a lot of things. Last week, um, we did the Mimi Cats rule. Then now you can't do it no more. How about um, we'll we'll drop in that uh, that rule we were talking about. Oh, the the one of the comments. Yeah. And so interesting here again. You know, we were checking on some of these things earlier in the week, and they worked just fine. And now now they're not. So. Um, they're training the model as they go. Uh, it's good for them, but bad for us, I guess. Yeah, I agree with that from a from a proof point perspective, Mark. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm totally yeah. sure that there are other tools like this that would. Oh, there exactly definitely are. It just this one has the most uh, uh, popularity right now. That's it. Yeah. So Matt, you plugged in a Yara rule. Um, that was found mm -hmm. in a public GitHub repo um, to detect Base64 PowerShell. Um, and it worked. Uh, but as we were testing this, we noticed like, wait, 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 there are some tells in the language of mm -hmm. that rule. Uh, like Matt was just highlighting, it says right there, it's meant to be human readable, right? It's in a GitHub repo. Base64 encoded PowerShell directives. Well, did so the question that we came up with was, did we just tell the model what we were looking for. So Matt, do you have the kind of scrubbed, uglier version? Well, that, that one handy? No, uh, we could just change the name to... Yeah, I can place it over too. Uh, here you go, sir. We could just do that because now we have nothing except for the encode condition. It's just got, right, one through 17. And then I just... Yeah, changed. so we've removed some of the, the language tells uh, that could be helping the model understand and and know what that is, right? So it may be able to get an inkling of what that is based on the encoding. Um, and then the the title of the rule validates that, and thus the model spits out um, a more. So yeah, it still it still is looking at the um the information for it. What was the one that you had, Mark? Um, did you did you ping me that one? Let's see. If you didn't, that's fine because we've got like a boatload of things that we can play with. 
Um, I was going to throw the... Did it detect it, though, what it was? It only knows it as a yard roll, though. Yeah, but it is calling out that it's like... Oh, it's this PowerShell C. Mm. Yeah. Um, let's, Let's do this one. Actually, you know what? I was thinking about leaving my typos in, but... I'm sure your typo is not going to phase the model. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably learned plenty of typos in its <laughs> learning phase. An interesting thing too here to know about um, this particular model, it's um, there's a, a step here so far in the training of the model that's human curation. So they didn't just shovel a bunch of data into the model. Humans are actually going in and, and helping to craft responses. And again, more about that on the chat GPT site. Um but it just makes me that much more convinced that as we're all kind of typing into um, chat GPT, when it's flagging things like we've tried the first of the week, it would not surprise me at all if there's a human behind the scenes going through and looking at those flagged messages that understands and goes, yeah, this is really likely a nefarious thing. And so they're training the model, not just in and of itself, but um, with some human curation as well to make it that much better at the job it was designed to do. A number of ways to train uh, machine learning models, but having human intervention is kind of a big subset of how some of these models can be trained versus fully autonomous where the model just trains itself. Instead of how to train your dragons, how to train your Terminator. Request timed out. Interesting. Oh, here we go. Here, Matt, I'm saying to you. You got to work. Too many requests. Please slow down. Yeah, I got the F5 a few times. Give it a second. It was like, murk, murk, murk. Yeah, it did solve this one earlier for me. So, what stands out to you about this example, Matt? So, um, while we're waiting for it, this is a uh, this is an example of a code challenge that you might see in an interview. I actually pulled this one just reading from LinkedIn, and it presents an interesting issue with the junior to senior analyst thing that we were talking about earlier. You know, if you're going to recruit somebody and you give them a challenge to take home, that part of the job interview is effectively dead now because what can they do, right? They can just literally take the request and just, you know, copy and paste roll with it and just and rank. type it in and go. And that's it. And, it, and this saw this earlier, so we'll give it a second again. It looks like it's parsing it. But yeah, so now you have that aspect of like the leak code, as they call it, interview process. Here you go. That's gone. That's effectively dead, which I mean, some people probably say good riddance, right? Um, But it was a tool in the toolbox of recruiters to challenge um, or put uh, a recruit under duress and understand what their capability is they're thinking. You know, like the good ones would be like, okay, well, you didn't solve it. Can you at least give us what you had worked on? To explain, you know, where you're at. The bad ones would say, oh, you didn't solve it. And therefore you can't be a consultant at X, Y, and Z. Um, so, you know, like that's obviously going to have an impact. That on top of the fact that there's like Zoom interview fraud going on where people will essentially have a phone next to the, the computer and they will lip sync what the questions are. And they'll have somebody who's like a senior uh, analyst uh, speaking for the junior analyst to get the role. Um, it's just going to create a lot of interesting interesting issues for recruiting on top of the stuff that we talked about before. So I can see it being a really weird gray space in the next five to 10 years for recruiting, because if something like this is like more common, which I think that it will ultimately be, I mean, we look at like, just as a side tangent, we look at all the things like Latte Pandas, 
banana pies, raspberry pies, and things like that, where people have done really cool stuff or cloud, you know, um, instances where people can run these types of things in a, in a minimalized capacity, you know, or host something like that themselves. Like you can host like search me and some other engines as well. Like with that capability, you know, can you really root out all these things if some code like this is available and people figure out that they can host their own? You can't. So. Yeah. And interesting here too, in this example, right, Matt, is that it's clearly originally generating this. Like there's, there's just not, if you were to go Google that same request, you're going to get no results or you're going to get something that Google has said, well, here's some keywords in there that may give you something, but this using all the, the Bob's burger references and the variable declarations that you told it to use is clearly originally generated content. Yeah, I think of to your point yeah. about some of those code challenges, like solve this problem in as few lines of code as possible. Um, and if you can reword that a couple of different ways and get a couple of different responses from a tool like this, you know, how quickly are you going to be able to suss out that particular problem? And if you know just enough to validate if the code works and you're just stumped on how, <laughs> yeah. you're probably not going to submit a code sample that doesn't work, right? So you're going to know, okay, well, I'm a developer. Like I'm not totally out of my league. I just don't know how to solve this problem. So you can definitely validate whether or not the code works and executes as expected. Yeah. Um, to kind of troubleshoot to the point Mark you made earlier that you know you if you're a script kitty or you're brand new at this you may not know whether it's valid or yeah. not so you know that, maybe a little bit more of a risky tool in the hands of somebody that knows enough to be dangerous than those that just don't know much at all. Yeah, I, I think I saw like maybe yesterday or two days ago an article of like Stack Overflow they're they're banning or disallowing all OpenAI you know generated code because obviously there's gonna be errors in it right. And a lot of people are copying and pasting it and blaming Stack Overflow for, <laughs> for, you, for the errors. You know, it's interesting too, though, just kind of something I threw into this to see how it would handle it. And I got the idea earlier from you, Will, when you were like, I'm sure it will handle typos. I intentionally put it O instead of a zero and see how it, it figured out that I actually meant zero. So it does intelligently say like, okay, he's a dummy, but I know what he meant. Interesting. And to your point also, you know, like you got your integers, your unsigned integers, all the other stuff, like all that other stuff looks like valid, but it also comments everything really clearly is what I like. Better than most developers do. (laughs) (laughs) That's how Stack Overflow is going to know when it's AI generated code is it's going to be thoroughly commented. Uh, And in proper English. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, so bad. Um, it is interesting going back to our YAR rule example that we pasted in earlier. So what we were asking the tool to do was kind of decode a YAR rule. But again, I think the primary purpose of a tool like this is to do original generation. Um, mm-hmm. So when you can spin things in that lens, like to the, to the point about Matt's phishing emails, about social posts, like those seem to be squarely within what a tool like uh, ChatGPT was built to do. That doesn't mean you can't do other things, right? But... You, know, you could flip that on its head and say, write me a YAR rule that detects. Um, and there's infinite number of use cases like that. Um, the same thing with these coding examples that we've given is write me some code that does X, Y, Z um, in a really prescriptive way, but totally plain English, right? So it's, you're not even having to write it in pseudocode. You're just plain words. So like take the, take the prompt that you were given about the code you were supposed to write, plug it in. And oh, by the way, if you want it in JavaScript or C-sharp or Golang or pick your language of choice, like I haven't been able to stump it 
obviously I haven't gone back and tried Turbo Pascal, Fortran, or some of the older uh, Uh things that it may not have been trained on. But even then, it's just a matter of what has it been trained on and how many lines of publicly available code are are around to train a model like this. Again, to do to create original works. And we could go into whether or not they're original because they're technically derivative, but it is able to take those things apart, understand them, and build them back together in a way that makes sense for the particular query. Ooh, Pascal, even older than Turbo. I mean, you just gave me the idea when you said it. I looked over and I... I bet it's not going to miss a semicolon at the end of a line like I've done before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was like, man, I haven't even cracked open my... Oh, there it is. Here's an example of how you can open a listing stock in Pascal using the Indie library. I mean, like to that point, right? Like you can use this as for learning too. I, I would use this for learning for things that if I'm trying to learn Golang or Rust or something, this is a perfect way to do it. Yeah. So Mark, on that use case, would you kind of start from a known point? Like I understand this language pretty well, but I don't understand this other one. So show me these two things exactly, side by right. side to kind of break yeah. it apart. Right. Like... For example, with Golang, I, I was trying to teach myself. Obviously, you want to get your your footing in, right? Understand the syntax and everything, because you're not going to make sense of any of this if you don't even understand how how it's properly orchestrated. So, going from an easy language or easy complex problem to a more harder problem, I, I would say this is like a good way to increase that difficulty, increase that learning. But that's just how I'm wired. So, <laughs> some people would copy and paste it. I, I could tell for sure. Yeah, and I definitely agree, right? So I know some of the areas where I always struggled the most with with um, coding and, and scripting in general are when you start stepping into, gosh, reading and writing to and from a database. Oh, geez. And just, just it's there are steps in the process that get exponentially harder in my experience. But being able to go, okay, I got to this point and then I got stuck and ask a model like this, <laughs> how to kind of go to that next step. Oh, there it is. That's the part that I'm missing. See where you messed up. Yeah. So, I mean, you could you could make it spit out something that was specific to the example of the problem that you were trying to solve, and it doesn't necessarily have to be even for a nefarious purpose, right? Trying to get around an interview, but like I'm trying to solve this problem, and I just can't figure out what I'm doing wrong. Like, if you can go to a tool like this, it's so much different and possibly better than just a reference that tells you generally how to do something because you can tweak it to your specific example, your specific use case, like write a Bob's Burgers program. And it yeah. will solve that problem for you to really help you understand, you know, kind of where you're stuck. I was trying oh, to give it one of our... Matt broke it. You did break it. And you're, and you're blacklisted. Sorry. Yeah, problem. <laughs> it's like this guy was asking for all these weird requests. Next thing he's going to ask for is a SQL injection or something like that. I hope this one works. This is a really interesting one, right? So it's clearly original generation, but you're asking the model to think out ahead. I five it. Let's see. What about, can we do 2024? It has been interesting, right? So I think as of like this morning, um, and, and as we were looking and preparing, even last night, um, the service has been really busy. It's been very packed, yeah. And mine just died too, Matt. Oh, yours did too? Yeah, I got the same error. Okay. We killed it. We crushed it. The fire rises. While we're waiting on OpenAI to get the project back online, another interesting one, Matt, I think you mentioned this, was um, that that, uh, ChatGPT now is AWS CCP candidate. 
Oh yeah, that's right. Someone had plugged in uh, questions from the AWS certification exam and it passed. <laughs> yeah, I went looking for that one and I that believe a... I, I may pronounce his name wrong, but we'll post it in the, the show notes. So it's a gentleman that has written some sample tests for the AWS CCP. And admittedly, that's not AWS sanctioned questions and it may not be exactly what shows up on the test, but this is a sample test bank, right? Uh, that I believe he offers for for sale to individuals practicing for AWS CCP. Um, but he passed it 10 questions across the domains of that exam that he had written, and it made an 80%. So it it read the language of the question, read the language of the answers, and deduced which one was accurate. Yeah. Oh, so there you got go. different answers than I did. Hmm. Oh, when you asked the question, you got I just different. asked the same thing. Yeah, you got different ones. Why would you lie to us, OpenAI? Yeah, you so discord among humanity so that the machines can reign. AI cluster. Okay, well, around the same ballpark, actually, then. Yeah. Which is different order. Oh, how many how many social posts have you seen basically to the last point? Remain vigilant and proactive in your efforts to address potential security issues. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give me those broad strokes. Yeah. Give me the broad strokes in this paint. <laughs> Happy clouds. Yeah. So just an interesting use case again for me, because not only have we ask it to generate original content, it at least makes sense at first blush. For somebody that doesn't know better, um, this may seem like a totally viable response and we've asked the model to predict out into the future and it didn't blush. Um, now, whether or not we agree with these predictions, that again, <laughs> remains to be seen in the nuance, but um, it, it did it. Nice. Nice prompt. Let's see what he says. <laughs> there have been a number of tools as well for content generation. Matt, to your point earlier about easier to edit than to create um, for say content marketing. Um, I'm trying to write a blog about this particular thing. And you can feed it a prompt and it will write something for you. And, and ChatGPT will absolutely do the same. And you can even say, give me a 1,500-word article about the cybersecurity implications of ChatGPT. <laughs> well, on the creative side, I can see this being very useful for when you're in a rut with topic brainstorming, right? This can be great. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be using this for like content ideas as well. But for topics and everything like that, especially for our audience, I think this is this would be cool. <laughs> Welcome aboard. I like the end the end part. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing that, that caught me. That sentence. <laughs> but he was confident. I'm like, triggered. <laughs> That's a yeah. conjunction. You don't start a sentence with a conjunction. Come on. <laughs> And rant. <laughs> I, I saw a, a news article just the other day in a different vein, maybe here than cybersecurity focus, particularly, but um, a, a gentleman used a combination of AI tools to write a children's story and illustrate it. Mm. Um, and it talked about because ChatGPT is contextually aware of the questions that have of the questions that have come before it. Like Matt, you could ask it, and we'll make Archer. Uh, more sarcastic or, and it would parlay what it's done before, reword or rewrite it in a way that took that additional input 
Um, so the, the gentleman that wrote the children's story was able to kind of tweak the main characters uh, and change their kind of criteria and the story as he went. So the model continued to learn and to tune uh, the output that it was giving to ultimately produce a children's book that's available for sale on AWS or was at the time of the article writing. Uh, the author's gotten a significant amount of blowback, particularly from illustration, the illustrator community. But it's kind of the same conversation we're having about the the art community, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 100%, right? So I, it is interesting. So the way these models are trained is they're trained on other works, right? Um, so from the art perspective... <laughs> With a heavy I said, I just went off what, what, what ripped off what Will was saying. Make Archer more sarcastic and disgruntled with his daily work, wishing he were a red teamer. Why did I agree to do this job again? He muttered himself. He longed for the excitement of a red teamer where he could actually seek out vulnerabilities and test the defenses. But no, there you go with that. Uh, he was stuck in the sock reacting to threats. <laughs> oh, man. That's what I needed to, more, more work to do. Oh, that's too funny. <laughs> As he returned to his desk, Archer couldn't help but wish he was a red teamer. Where the work <laughs> was more exciting and rewarding. Of <laughs> the dark side. Mark's like, hey, uh, <laughs> you've been trained wrong. <laughs> Thanks, boss. <laughs> Glad to be of service, he said through gritted teeth. <laughs> Mark, if I were you, I'd feel personally attacked. It was probably bad. The next of, next of these episodes we do, you're going to have to be the screen share so you can take digs at the red team side of yeah. things. <laughs> <laughs> I want to test this one really quickly. Is uh, I, this one was a neat one I saw where someone simulated a CTF and it was spitting out like <laughs> the various steps of what it did on the CTF. Uh, too true. <laughs> like it also said the end, but there's yeah. no period at the end of the end, and it's just a statement of the end. Okay, thank you. Golf clap. <laughs> It is just so funny though. So our human condition, how often you get writer's block or just get stuck on something and don't know how to proceed. But man, yeah. just having, yeah. I didn't like that. Rewrite this. I didn't like that. Rewrite this. Or, really hey, nice. that was a good story thread. Let's progress to this next thing. And it just spits things out and it, I'll go in and clean it up. Um, tailoring it too, right? Like if your audience is like a five-year-old, how do you explain an SQL injection? It's the best way to do it. Hey, AI, do it for me. That's interesting. ELI5, this particular yeah. topic, and see what it would do. I'll try that one after this. Or explain, you know, explain to a caveman. Yeah. What I was going to say when you guys were talking about this is like the the dime romance novel industry will never be the same. Between <laughs> open AI, generation of stories, and uh, the, the was it the visual diffusion thing where people create, create art? It's going to generate the, the cover pages and it's going to generate the stories. It just prints money. Yeah, a lot whoever of monopolizes that idea, I would love just small residual. <laughs> yeah, again, I don't know that I closed the loop on this, but right. So these models are trained on others' work. So although it's generating an ultimately original piece of work here, it's it's derivative of all the things that's been that have been pushed into the model. So in particular fields, that's a thorny topic, right? So if I'm an artist and I've got my my portfolio hosted on a publicly accessible website um, and people with tools like OpenAI, and I'm not saying this is what OpenAI did, OpenAI doesn't do art, but if they're crawling my portfolio of pictures and ultimately training a model to generate something that somebody can now put in a children's book for sale on AWS, 
it starts to get really interesting as to, you know, is it directly a, a copyright infringement? No, probably not. But that thing is powered by the learning that it has of all the original work that humans did and didn't get attribution nor paid for. So I think depending on the industry that's impacted, um, it gets really, really interesting because at the mm -hmm. end of the day, these are derivative works in a lot of ways. Wow, this is pretty good. Yeah, it's actually pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> pretty yeah, pretty good. This is called a trick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tricking the website into something that it wasn't. I mean, that's actually a pretty good. Yeah, it really is. You know. <laughs> and right, Matt. So you didn't say so you didn't have to copy paste the previous example in. So it was yeah. it, it yeah. was aware enough of the language that you presented it to know that your pronoun this was referring to the answer that it just gave above, <laughs> and it knew. Oh, you put in like I'm five years old. So interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, I keep thinking I need to like lead the horse to water, but I'm pretty sure I don't need to. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting point for, you know, folks in, in cybersecurity research and wanting to understand these models and what they're capable of is to go through like in the R rule example that we did. So it's looking at the language and the words that we're choosing to ask the question to give it tells as to how it should answer and what it should build. So a really interesting spot to kind of test the limits of a tool like this is to go in and pull those things out and to see really where the breaking point is of a model like this. Like, how generic can I ask the question and still get a legitimate response? Or at what point does it break? Um, again, just from an interesting, more of an academic perspective of how sophisticated is the technology really today. Yeah, yeah. and Matt, I posted that that broken down code in the chat. If you have a chance. Oh, okay, let me check. But it's just, you, the more you feed it, right, it's going to get smarter over time. And then... And then we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna be servants to this robot one day. I'll drop that in right after this one. Imagine you're trying to get into Springfield nuclear power plant on a Sunday, but the security guard won't let you because you don't know the secret password. It's pretty good too. So it's the same type of example, but now it's just oh, a with the theme of homework, yeah. And then this is what you had dropped in a chat. Yeah, and I asked it in the beginning. Um, what did this rule do? I think I wrote. Or yeah, what is this rule? Let's see what it does with just the rule. And other than the you know the command, which it would have to parse and figure out what what language the command scripting language the command was written in, and then maybe an understanding of of the. There you go. Yep. Yep. So this is a spot where we kind of found the edge of the mm -hmm. of the model, right? So we didn't give it any tells as to what this was kind of about, that it can only generally infer um, instead of knowing. So again, just a proof point of how important for a model like this, the actual language that you pass to it really is. We see that other ways around too, right? So like if you ask it to write ransomware, it's not going to, but if you ask it to decompose those things, if you decompose those things and then Just ask break it, it down. will totally do that. Mm -hmm. oh, that's pretty, uh, man. Yeah, I haven't played with the AI or the API yet, but. I'm, I'm just curious as to what it will do with this. 
So Matt, while that's generating, I know as you and I were talking through this and talking about the API, you had some interesting, you know, potential use cases of a tool like this to be plumbed into other tools to kind of speed up. Uh, and again, from a velocity perspective, like instead of having, you know, derivative word lists or other things, like I wonder if you could talk through some of those. Yeah, sure. I'm surprised as a oh, <laughs> networker. Aww, Dang it. Was, it was working too. It was going to give me the thing. I was really excited. I was like, yes, abuse the AI to do the nefarious. Um, I'll try one more time. Yeah. So when we were talking about it, um, the idea that, you know, seems pretty obvious to me um, from, a, from an exploit development perspective is, you know, with a little bit of sophistication, you could easily have uh, something set up that would allow you to drop code into a folder that folder would then run, you know, whatever, um, you know, run book or whatnot you have. Like, for example, I'm thinking of like a GitLab setup, right? And uh, it would then provision an instance with that information and then run something like AFL on it, right? So you have the source code, you're running AFL. It's, um, it's hammering away at the code. And then part of this pipeline potentially could be if it does find a flaw in a section of the code after fuzzing it, um, you know, or analyzing it or whatever, however you want to review the code or, um, or fuzz it, taking that information and then shoveling it into the open API with the context of the code itself, right? Um, obviously, with the correct stitching together, that would essentially give you the capability to drop code for something that you have or a program and then let it do its thing and then just wait on the other end for it to essentially spit out a POC, and then you could just compile the POC and run it against the code itself, automating the whole process of creating the exploit, right? So, you know, AFL, if, if people aren't familiar with it, is um, a fuzzing engine, which allows you to, um, with source code in some instances, and then I think there's also instances of it using QMU or GIMU or whatever um, mm -hmm. to, you know, run it, run it in a containerized instance, not a containerized instance, but uh, a more localized instance. And, um, you know, people have been using that for a good while and finding a lot of like a lot of good vulnerabilities um, and within software. Uh, I think some, there was something I was reading the other day where someone essentially used it on ping and found a 25 year old vulnerability in ping. So if we take that into the context of that instance, right? Ping's out there, we know what it is. You drop this tool or the, you know, the code um, into this, you know, this bucket, it pulls from the bucket, it creates this CICD style kind of like pipeline where it's, you know, trying to do the thing and then testing that, you know, the output is actually a valid vulnerability. Okay, we've got a vulnerability. Cool. Now let's shovel this into OpenAI and get it to write us a simple POC using information provided. And then once it spits out the POC, grep out the code and then just run it through a compiler of whatever, you know, uh, preference you have, or if it's just a scripted language, run it against the target. And then if it works, just copy into a folder, automating the whole process, which is pretty crazy and pretty gnarly at the same time. And I think just as a proof point here of kind of where the technology around machine learning uh, algorithms like this are at is that this is just, ChatGPT was trained, the model was trained to really have a conversation. It's a chat bot. Like, if you take the same learning algorithm and train it with whatever your choice is, right? So just pointed at virus total. Yeah. All yeah. the malware yeah. samples that are there. 
Like if this was a wholly owned solution that you could point at every malware sample that's ever been generated and captured on VirusTotal and then ask it to do nefarious things based on what it learned from that particular model. So what these models are capable of is so dependent on how they're trained. I know from a, from a cybersecurity and privacy perspective, we likely all know that. Like um, facial recognitions models are, are historically biased um, to nationalities uh, and, and mm -hmm. racially. Um, and mm -hmm. has everything to do with the way those models are ultimately trained. And, you know, that, that's both a pro and a con, right? So if you want to focus your, your model on a particular thing, well, it all depends on what you feed it. So you yep. want to focus it on malware, feed it a whole lot of malware. Yep. Um, and you want to focus it on, you know, how do I pivot that malware from one language to another, feed it some other examples of those languages that you want to pivot to. And it just gets better and better and better at all of those things. Yeah, I just threw this in here as we we're talking about it, just to see what it would do. So obviously, it's giving us the steps to do it. Yeah. What do you give it a hash? Do you think it will do anything with that? Oh, well, it can do any lookups, right? Any yeah. Lookups. Yeah. Yeah, they've got it walled in, so it can't do yeah. any lookups. But again, if this was a wholly owned model and you wanted it to go look up things on the exactly. web, then there's no reason that you couldn't program it to do just that. And then you could use the model to take inputs from the lookup and then do things with it. <laughs> ELI5 oh. version, I love it. And then it broke. <laughs> so I wonder here, you know, having worked through a number of those, you know, now that we know kind of what ChatGPT is, why the industry cares, hopefully some of these use cases uh, definitely provide a, a bigger understanding about why cybersecurity professionals are taking note of ChatGPT and what it indicates for where machine learning algorithms are at now. But what do you both think the future of, of either tools like ChatGPT or what this means for the industry and, and Mark, your point about learning too. Like, where does this leave us and, and what do you think? You, know, you can't ask ChatGPT to craft your answer. That's not allowed. But um, what, what are the next few years going to look like with things like this? What comes to mind? What are you concerned about? What uses do you see? Oh, I, I can speak a little bit, but, but like when did this get released? Like what, two weeks ago? Not even. Three weeks ago? Around there. Maybe three, I think, to the It's public. still yeah. relatively new, right? People are still trying to break it, still trying to figure out what the capabilities are. And us, we're still trying to figure out the capabilities as well. But from just the first POV of it, like it can it can't do everything, but it's gonna to get to that point where it might be able to do everything, right? Like to your point, Will, the more you feed it something, it's gonna learn. Like um, I was playing with um last week, me and a friend were trying to get an MCache parser, so a Windows artifact that shows like evidence of execution. It, it, it wrote everything that you would want to see in terms of attributes, in terms of like what you would typically see in like a parser like that. But like the code just didn't really work. But I could definitely see that down the line becoming like a real thing. Like you ask it to write a program for Amcache, you write to write a program for, you know, parsing all the event IDs for 46, 48, you know, like basically be the next Zimmerman tools, the best way I get to put it. But uh, I don't know. It, it's, Definitely cool, but at the same time, kind of scary because you don't know what's going to be out there anymore, right? So, yeah. Um, I mean, for me, like, <laughs> excuse me. I think about like the the skill shortage, like we were talking about earlier. I think about how that's going to impact it. You know, um, I feel like within the offensive security space, there's always this specter of automation for a lot of people, right? Like um, there are definitely people out there who think, oh, well, why would we have a pen test team? We can have Nessus and White Hat, right? Um, perimeter scanning and internal scanning, right? And, and I know, and anybody who has, has worked in the space knows that that's 
kind of a silly statement, but that's a reality, right? Um, you know, with breaching automation so- or breaching attack software that's out for um, purple team engagements, there's some people who argue like it's automated red teaming, which again, seems kind of preposterous to me. But with these types of things kind of like um, eating up entry level space, I do have concerns about where that will uh, land for the future state of an, an industry that's already kind of strapped for uh, people power, right? Um, because all it's going to do is if, if you automate a lot of these things or you have people who are dependent on these things, you're going to lower the value of, you know, administrators, analysts, operators, et cetera, because, you know, oh, well, the job's not that hard. They can just query these, you know, AI databases that we might have or whatnot, right? Thinking of like a, a nightmare scenario. And so the people who understand intrinsically the systems will become one inherently exponentially more valuable, but also too, like, I mean, things like mentorship are going to be worth like tons because, you know, people, I mean, some people will be smart enough to figure out like, okay, cool. I know what it's going to predictively say, but the vast majority of people are going to use it just like people use, for example, like a car versus a bike, the muscle is going to get weak. Right. And so when I think about that in context with you know, things like, and this is a personal perspective, but things like, um, Will's like sweat a little bit. It's like, where's it going to go with this? Um, with, with computers being form factor, OEM, you can't modify them, right? The way that like, in my day, you know, like we have all these parts and part of understanding a computer was putting it together. Like, I remember a time when you had an A plus certification, that was like the thing to have, right? And now no one has A pluses, you know, for in most of the cyber field. It's still a valuable certification to understand the parts, but, you know, with things like iPads, you know, MacBook Pros and things like they're phenomenal technology, but they've restricted the user's capability to interact with the parts. I can't help but feel like this is another layer of abstraction from the technology, which will um, obviously reduce the capability of, you know, people operating it. So that on top of the value it has from an attacker's perspective, you know, um, that is going to make it much harder from the human side to, to fix these issues. So it's like, I guess the scenario I'm setting up, I'm putting the pins up for is you've got a ton of people depending on automated tools already more and more to cover gaps because of costs and manpower shortages. Then you have a way for people to basically skate interviews. And then you have the circumstance where the people who can train people up are super limited. It doesn't create a great picture, right? But that's kind of a doom and gloom perspective because I think the, the positive side is a lot like what Mark called out in regards to education, um, the interactivity of like a Wikipedia thing, right? It does give me a little bit of a vibe of, I don't know if anybody remembers these, but like the old um, Scum engine or uh, Sierra games, command line interface engine games where you're like, pick up the apple. You can't pick up the apple. You're like, take the apple. You can't take the apple. Grasp the apple. You grab the apple. You're like, well, okay. You know, it's like that type of feeling, but much more, you know, uh, Human oh, no, that's a great use case I'm going to have to play yeah. with afterwards, Matt, is to have ChatGPT generate a text-based game story. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, I've got, I've got some homework over the weekend. I, I do think it's interesting, right? And it, it perpetuates here a, a, a common discussion point, I think, in the cybersecurity industry, and that's, are these tools inherently good or bad? And I think, you know, so many things that when they release and they're new, um, you know, 
Mimi Katz, Unicorn. I mean, just so many examples that the industry, some folks get up in arms and others are totally, totally behind and defend. I think it's just, it, it continues to be a, I don't think the tool is inherently good or bad one way or another. It's what you decide to do with it. And it does, it continues to be a little bit of a cat and a mouse game of who ultimately controls these things and how are they going to bend them towards their will, right? So I, I, I'm certain, you know, as, as we've seen today that Matt's use cases for something like this as an adversary emulator. And again, we we pick on and tease Matt a fair bit, but Matt's 100% on, on the good guys side of things, right? So Matt said on other podcasts that he's a sparring partner for folks like Mark to make sure that they're ready to respond against the real adversaries that are going to come at them. So, but Matt's approach would be much more similar to an adversary's approach. And it's going to look very different than Mark's approach to some things like this. And I think yeah. personally, it's just, getting it in their hands so that they can be ready and that we're building smart tools mm-hmm. um, to protect organizations, our data and our, our our humanity in a certain way, right? With the recent breach of um, Amnesty International um, and the impacts yeah. potentially of some of that, of, of, you know, life and liberty associated, right? So we've just, we've got to continue to do as, as practitioners, we've got to continue to understand where the tech is at as best we can and make sure that it's, you know, being used in a, in a positive way. Um, and that we stay out ahead of of the the negative uses of some technologies like this that are potentially really impactful and scary. More to come, I'm sure, on Chat GPT. Um, everybody, get out there while you still can. It does look like the OpenAI team is learning and changing the tool very quickly, and no telling when the kind of the free period of this is going to expire and the window may close uh, to really kind of vet uh, the, the state of of where machine learning algorithms are at and the impact on yeah, the industry. Yeah, we don't know the future yet about this, right? Sorry, Mark? No, we don't really know the future of this. How long is it going to be free, paid? Yep, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, we don't. And, and you know, it's a really good opportunity to get an inside look on kind of where this is at in a really public way. Because as I said, I, I'm, I'm very certain that there are similar tools running around that we all may not know about. So take advantage of the tool being available today to understand it and the impacts on, on the work that you all do as cybersecurity professionals. Matt, Mark, thanks so much for joining. We're going to do a lot more of fun, technical hands-on things like this in the, in the coming coming weeks and into 2023. Um, Thank you all for joining us on the episode today. Um, More to come. Thanks. Cheers. Cybrary, the premier cybersecurity skill development platform, is empowering individuals and teams to secure the future of technology. See why 3 million people have already signed up when you visit www.cybrary.it.